Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, our conversation before we hit record was, yeah, something. Uh, Jan, um, I've got a brain freeze. I'm hoping you haven't seen this. It just, it happened a while ago, but it just hit the local and national, in fact, news uh, yesterday. Okay. Um, and this is our sixth episode, and this is this is one that's going to be real hard to top. Okay. And um, I don't, you know how we usually kind of like uh, get each other to guess at what the other person said, like, yeah, yeah. you know, to guess it. I have no idea what to even ask to get you to try to, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll attempt it. So to okay. set the scene, um, like many other state legislatures in the country, uh, Kentucky state legislature is beholden to national conservative consultants who just give them legislation and say, hey, Here's pass something this. we want you to pass because it yeah. really sucks and it's going to fire up everybody and whatever. <laughs> so, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there are not there's not one but two separate anti diversity, equity, inclusion bills in the okay. Kentucky state legislature uh, this okay. session, which is right in the middle of of, of its session, okay. and. Um, one of the sponsors of those bills, I think, is from Shelbyville, you know, about a little bit east of, of Louisville. Okay. And um, she went to talk to the NAACP, the local NAACP, about this okay. and, and other other topics. And in the midst of, of that, um, uh, the uh, someone in the audience asked her if she knew if anyone in her family had been involved in the slave trade or, or anything like that. And, and it, this largely goes without saying in Kentucky, but this is a, a white person. It's a, a white woman. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, and uh, do you have any idea now what, what if you were trying to be as thick, obtuse, dense, <laughs> stupid, offensive, ignorant, um, oh my gosh, yeah, as possible. What is something you could have said, uh, or this Lord. not you, but what is something yeah, yeah, yeah. that this person could have said? I mean, so to say that you know, obviously, to say that I don't know if they were. That's not uh, obtu- uh to say that no. they. I don't know. That's a ri- like maybe they said yes, they were, but on the slave side of things, I have no idea. <laughs> No, no. When that, I mean, even if that wasn't true, that would reflect some understanding of how slavery ah, okay. worked and why and why it was bad. Yeah. So um, this uh, person, uh, who I, you know, I think she said her her father, and bear in mind this is a white person uh, uh-huh. whose father was born probably sometime in the 1930s. She uh-huh. said her father had actually been a slave. What? Yeah. Wait. So just it. Wait. Mm-hmm. She and she's she's not uh, of mixed race. No. Everybody's a lily uh, white. Lily white. Um. And her father is not an immigrant from a country that might have had nope. white slaves in nope. the 1930s. I don't know where that is, but no. Nope. Uh, wow. No. Wow. This was in Kentucky. Yeah. She told the NAACP. This is and again, this is a sponsor of a of an anti diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion bill. She told did the she, local NAACP that her white father born in the thirties yeah. had been a slave. Did she expand on that in any way that would provide any sort of um, clarity or only, context or anything? 
Only if you are pro- like the most generous person in the world. Uh, so let let me give you some context. Okay, here's okay. here's the exact quote. And somebody, this okay. just came to light. Somebody was recording this uh, mm. session. You know, who knows why? I'm sure it was. I like to think they were recording it knowing that something <laughs> like this was likely to have been said. Sure, 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 um, sure. Uh, so... Quote, my father was a slave just to a white man and he was white. Number one. Okay. Just to a white man who else owns slaves. Like what I, you know, I, yes. I mean, every now and then there was a non-white slave owner, but yeah, not very. Okay. So, uh, the author of the story here, Joe Gerth, let me shout him out. A local, uh, courier journal reporter, uh, columnist rather Decker's father was a white preacher. He was born sometime around 1933, 68 years after the 13th amendment outlawed slavery. Um, so, uh, she goes on to say, um, let's see. Uh, my father was born on a dirt farm in Lincoln County. His mother was the illegitimate daughter of a very prominent person who was then kind enough, the slave owner, of her father was kind enough uh-huh. to allow them to work for him as slaves. So if you're asking, did we own slaves? My father was a slave just to a white man and he was white. So it sounds like oh what she's describing is a pretty common practice, not a great practice you in a lot yeah, of cases yeah, yeah. of tenant farming, sharecropping, yeah. something like that. Right. Um, but certainly not uncommon and, and, and nowhere near uh, slavery. And, uh, and it, it wasn't her father, you know, her father was the child in this family that was, so, so the author yeah, yeah, goes yeah. on to say, well, it sounds like her father had to do chores on the family <laughs> land is what it sounds like. Sure. And to yeah. her, to her, this is the same as, this is the same as slavery. Well, so this is. This is what the the right has been trying to do for a while now is to make slavery, uh, to change the terminology to something mm-hmm. along the lines of indentured servitude or something, you know. So in her mind, that probably is the same thing, like an idiot. Well, anyway, keep I, going. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I that's the long and short of the brain freeze. I mean, and, and when she was asked about it initially, she just kept yeah. saying irrelevant, irrelevant. Like literally that was what she said. And then she <laughs> finally, she finally conceded that she may have probably overstated, uh, what she wow. meant to, to say, but, and she said and, it you, to, to say it, to say it is a brain freeze to say it makes my mm-hmm. anywhere a, a headache. right to say it anywhere, yeah. but to say it to the NAACP, yeah. How, how, how did and i also can't like so i'm sure the person who was recording continued to record i'm i'm shocked that somebody didn't just call her out in the moment they may have yeah that that didn't make it into the, into oh, the stories or, or maybe or maybe they were like yeah i mean that's what just stupid ass white people say and this is just another stupid ass white person thing that we have to sit well, here that, and listen yeah. to and yeah um yeah. so I, uh I guess when and, you hear enough of it, you just roll your eyes and move on to the next thing. It probably depends on how you're feeling that day. You know, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> how much energy you I have. I can't wrap my head around it. You man. know, like <laughs> you're absolutely right. That is, that is certainly the most frozen my brain has felt since we started this. Um, yeah. Are, I mean, do, it, what are you, do you, what is her name? Uh, Decker, I think is her last name. Let's see. Decker. She is a 60, Eight-year-old lawyer from 
I guess she was born in Lincoln County. Like I said, Shelbyville, yeah. I think, is where she was given this speech. I don't know where she represents, to be to be honest. Gotcha. But it's, gotcha. Um, I'm guessing it's somewhere without a whole lot of African American population. Um, but Good Lord. you know, who knows? So, and it. I mean, I feel. <laughs> Yeah. The show that you and I are doing, it's like, um, I feel like we come back to the same shit over and over, but it just yeah. keeps punching us in the face. Like, yeah, again, like somebody, she went there to explain why we did not need diversity, equity, inclusion programs. Right. And, and why, you know, by extension, racism is not really a thing. But, right. but again, let me as a white person tell you just how bad yeah. my family had it because of our race. And let, you know what? I, I was, a, my family were slaves. I can't, um, I, it's, I mean, I'm like, at a he, loss this, for words. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few different reasons, but this is one of the reasons I think John Stewart's return to the daily show is a bad idea. It's like, he, he, there's nothing you can make fun of here. Like it, it, <laughs> We've gotten to a point where like what I mean, and like you know what I would do? I would like just play the clip and then if I was the host of a show, like daily show, I would just stare into the camera for yeah. like five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> like your brain was frozen. Cause at this point, what other reaction yeah. is there? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I texted this to somebody yesterday. I mean, I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. We are living in the most absurd version of the multiverse. Uh, oh, that is out yeah. There. Um, I, and you know, they're, they're... you you said early on in one of our uh, shows something about uh, how you and an academic friend of yours had discussed at one time that the you believe the, the world <laughs> really kind of ended in 1969. Right. And 68. Um, yeah. 68. Sorry. And, um, and I firmly believe that things like this just add proof to mm-hmm. your point. I mean, that, that that's that's something yeah. that a crazy person says in a post-apocalyptic novel. Yeah, or an alien who comes down and, like, is trying to be human but doesn't really know how, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, doesn't... Yeah. Um, it's like... <laughs> I mean, you know, put a fucking... I mean, this is where maybe AI could, you know, be of some genuine use. Like if, if yeah. you're a moron, you know, just, just let an AI, okay. Uh, chat, what, what kind of chat GPT prompt can you, okay. Write me a speech to the NAACP that explains why we don't need DEI initiatives. Um, uh, it, the so, chat, the chat thought may just explode, but yeah. Oh no. I, I genuinely think that somebody who is stupid enough to say that, at best, at best, should probably type into the chat GPT thing. Tell me how to talk to black people. I think that's <laughs> right. I think they or, need right. that much help tell, because they've never spoken me, to one before. I'm pretty sure. Or just, you know what? Uh, hey, chat, Ch- chat GPT, can you please write me a speech that isn't ridiculously racist? Oh, my Lord. Oh, yeah. my Lord. Somebody, somebody out there try that and see, yeah. what, <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, we could pontificate about this for hours and hours and hours. Uh, but yeah, I, we would we'd just, be arriving back at the same what, place. Like you said, yeah, I just feel like um, staring into the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you lose further hope in the <laughs> possibilities of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, all right. Well, uh, our brains are frozen. And again, let's try to devote the rest of the episode toward unfreezing them.
All right, everybody, welcome to Scooping Sanity, episode six. Yawn, this, I think this is the first time we've managed to, to get these out weekly, uh, which is yeah, not so too bad considering, yeah, I mean, uh, considering it's only our sixth episode. I mean, we're on a pretty good weekly schedule, knock on wood. Hopefully yep, these absolutely. will be rolling out uh, Wednesday morning uh, from here on out, unless we take a uh, a planned break. Um, so today, Yon, um, we have a topic that is both specific, but also very general in the sense that it's, it's hard to discuss this specific topic without touching on all sorts of other stuff. And we'll do our right. best to kind of rein ourselves in, which is not a strong suit of either, either of <laughs> us, but maybe we can <laughs> help each other. So today's topic goes by many, many different names. Uh, the probably most well-known name, e- even though a lot of people in the United States, at least, aren't familiar with the term is neoliberalism. Uh, interestingly, if you travel throughout um, the developing world or, you know, what we used to call the third world, the non-Western world, whatever, most people are intimately familiar with what this word is. Uh, even people that, that never, you know, went to formal school or had very little okay. former schooling, they know, they know what neoliberalism is because it has profoundly reshaped their lives and mm. it's profoundly reshaped our, it's profoundly reshaped our lives too. Um, but which is why we don't um, know about it. Hey, well, that's exactly right. <laughs> so Jan, what, um, when I say the term neoliberalism, like, do you, what is your level of kind of awareness comprehension of this term? So to be completely frank, um, it's one of those terms that like most, uh, Americans I had heard, I had sort mm-hmm. of, um, just, it was background noise that I glossed over and didn't mm-hmm. really fully understand. Um, uh, until, well, first the, my first encounter with it would have been in college, but but at, at that point, it mm-hmm. was just an, a, an academic exercise to talk uh-huh. about it. But but uh, no, my my knowledge of it has grown a lot over the last week because of some of the readings that you were kind enough to send me. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's the like most Americans. It was it was a casual knowledge at best. Okay, so let's clarify. So first of all, neoliberalism, the liberal here is in the economic or market sense. It's not doesn't refer to political ideology, at least on the political spectrum, like conservative, liberal, progressive or anything. Which I think is one of the reasons why people don't fully understand it is that they're inundated with those two terms, liberal and conservative, a lot in in another context. And it's, you know, so it gets muddled. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, I think when it first came, so it's an economic system where it purports, I mean, this is part of the issue. It purports to be merely an economic system. It is actually much, much more than that as we're going to get into. And one of the arguments that I made when I, back when I was doing scholarly work is that um, neoliberalism is one of the forces that has most profoundly reshaped the modern world, you know, post-World War II era world, uh, a little bit later than that, but that'll do us for now, in ways that we don't really fully understand or appreciate. Um, sure. So um, it is essentially a radical, again, this is what it purports to be. It's not really, yeah, yeah, yeah. as we'll see. Yeah, yeah purports to be a radical free market ideology that, you know, basically the Ayn Rand, you know, Mm -hmm. crazy ass libertarian mode of society where all government bad, um, 
you know, so reg- government regulations are bad, laws are bad. Uh, we need to get rid of as many of those as possible. We need to just let the market operate because the market is omniscient. Um, the market knows all. Um, so famously, a lot of people, now he did not actually say this, or he did, but he qualified it heavily. But Adam Smith is the um, intellectual founder supposedly of this form of society okay and um a lot of people seize on this notion that adam smith said that uh in in the marketplace if we all pursue our own individual interests that the invisible hand of the market will guarantee the most optimal outcomes and smith did say something very much like that but he qualified it heavily in ways that we'll, we'll get to shortly. So okay. that's the general, you know, nub of neoliberalism, government bad, business good, free market good. Um, uh, you know, neoclassical economics is, is another term that it goes by. So things like, for instance, you know, a lot of people, NAFTA, for instance, I mean, yeah. it's been a long time ago now, but that's a classic neoliberal um, set of policies because it, sure you know, gets rid of tariffs, gets rid of, you know, taxes on trade. Um, I guess the opposite or one of the opposites of neoliberalism would be like protectionism. Okay. Uh, where you enact different policies to promote domestic production, Yeah. you know, to, to, to penalize uh, the trade, the trade that happens across borders so right. that um, so that your own domestic producers can have an advantage. And uh, interestingly, uh, the United States and other Western powers, when they were gaining their power, they were very much protectionists. Yeah. Uh, but now that, you know, we're economic powers, we turn around and say to the rest of the world, no, 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 you can't do that. That's bad. You're breaking international international laws. Mm. So this, you know, as the the listener has probably been on, uh, already to um, discern, this might be an extra dorky episode of Scooping <laughs> Sanity, but it's a really, really important one. Um, so because this, like we said, th- this this philosophy runs our lives. So let's start with yeah. the history part of it. Okay. Okay. So were you taught growing up? Or did you get the message growing up that one of the things that made the the United States of America great and, and probably the greatest creation that God has ever ordained <laughs> in the history of the universe was that we had a strong middle class? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, of course I was told yeah. that. Uh, a strong middle class that uh, that had built the country, you know, right. Uh, right. through... The automotive industry, the steel industry, the coal industry, all those things. A very strong right. middle class that had done that. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a core message. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people got that message. And a lot of people, even though it's becoming progressively more clear that the middle class is small, shrinking, you know, struggling. And a was lot never of as big as we were told that it was. And was that, well, that's exactly right. So, and was never a, so the thing about a middle class under capitalism is that it doesn't, it doesn't happen naturally. Right. Um, it has to be brought about by policy. I mean, it happens naturally for a very small percentage of the population. So like right. if you think about like colonialism uh, example as like a, a, you know, slavery, but then post slavery, like uh, plantation systems of, of agriculture and production, 
um, you know, there, there wasn't, there, there was only a middle class to the extent that the owners of everything didn't really want to administer, <laughs> you know, their, <laughs> their slaves or their factories or whatever, you know, yeah, they didn't want to yeah, yeah, do yeah. the actual work. They needed somebody to hire some people to, you know, do the accounting, you know, be on yeah. the phone or whatever the equivalent of the phone was, you know, to, right, to, right, right. to coordinate trade, to keep the, to keep laborers in line. And you didn't need a whole lot of people to do it. So that was the, you know, is the managerial class, you know, in a lot of yeah. colonial settings, you know, it was very much a color coded, you know, oh, white sure. people were the owners, uh, dark people, African, you know, uh, people of African ancestry were the laborers. And then the middle was like mm. a mulatto or mixed race bourgeoisie, you know, but right. other than that, very tiny middle class, a, a middle class has to be brought about by specific policies. So you're, you know, you're a smart, informed guy. So what, uh, mm-hmm. after, you know, after the depression, World War II era, post-World War II era, what do you think were some of the policies that helped to create a, a, a pretty big middle class in the United States? Uh, I would say the GI Bill maybe was a, was a yeah, absolutely brand that about. Um, yeah. Huge, and- huge factor. And, and so the, what explain to us what was in the GI Bill? So in the GI Bill, if you had served your country during World War II or actually at any time, uh, you could get a, a college education or some form of post-secondary mm-hmm. education uh, yeah. on, the gov- on the government. Right. Vocational training, uh, yeah. higher education. Any number uh, of things. Home, home buying programs. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You could get help, you yeah. know, g- gaining the means toward to, to upward mobility. Absolutely. Uh, and this is a time, you know, when home ownership was, well, that's, I'm sorry, I won't take, take your material here, but that's another You're aspect fine. of it is government programs that promoted home ownership, you know, prior right. to World War II, you typically had to put like 50% down on a house and then you had to pay the mm. rest off over five years. And of course, so this, this was unattainable to the vast majority of people. Yeah, it was, it you was know, the beginning World. of. It was the beginning of, of uh, the average person being able to get a mortgage, 20-year mortgage, 30-year mortgage, yeah. so that you that, could that's right. uh, yeah. so you could have a smaller down payment and be able to pay. That. And also, um, the the tax structure in that post-World War II world um, of, of yes. Eisenhower, Excellent especially, uh, had, uh, had, a, had a structure that was definitely taxing the, the wealthy at a rate yeah. that so much higher than it is now, yeah. like three yeah. times higher than it is now. Yeah, um, I, I, and, I think even more than that. But yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, and the taxes on the people that would then become the middle class were considerably lower than they are now, and there was a threshold that would allow for people who weren't in the middle class yet uh, to be able yeah. to hopefully potentially achieve that. That's right. Yeah. So very high marginal tax rates on, you know, wealth above a certain level. Um, Yeah. 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 So home ownership programs. And then, you know, so the New Deal, of course, uh, prior to World War II, a lot of that was instituted. But, you know, it continued after the war uh, with Social Security. You know, the return. Well, there's, of course, there's the manufacturing boom that had to occur because of World War II. So that, you know, wartime economy. Yeah. Wartime economy, obviously, and then you know the GIs returning from the war um, allowed for uh, that growing economy to have uh, more people to fill those positions, yeah. and yeah. Um, would allow for people to actually raise a family in a single income household. Absolutely, and um, 
so so we've got as you point out we've got the new deal lots of government spending lots of government programs we've got the wartime economy driven by government spending we've got um uh the gi bill and uh and uh, associated you know policies huge amount of government spending so uh and i'm you know i'm i may be leaving some stuff out too but but these are i i i'm pretty sure the three biggest uh, components that created a post-world war ii middle class you know a big one and uh and it all comes down to government policy that is not strictly speaking uh capitalist you know it's well it's it's what we call keynesian you know economics which is when after john maynard keynes you know the whose basic approach to economics was look capitalism free markets are great when they're working but they're not perfect and they often fail. And when they do fail, government has a role in mitigating the damage and getting things back on track. Um, We're not of course uh, in a Keynesian era uh, anymore, but that was a big philosophy at the time. And also like you hear this term, like the welfare state, like a lot of like Mm. social democracies in in Europe are still are are categorized as welfare states where, you know, there's a social safety net um, for for people. Um, uh, so as with anything in America, we need to, um, put the, uh, caveat on all of this. Jan, I'm, I'm going to give you one guess. If, if you had to guess which group of people were intentionally excluded from many of the benefits of all this government spending. Yeah. I would say anybody who didn't look like you and I, uh, yeah, we're not yeah. White. and it's right specifically African American, specifically so, African American people. Yeah, so there and there's all kinds of. Yeah, there's a great book called uh, "When Affirmative Action Was White" by the historian Ira Katznelson, and uh, oh, wow. it's uh, it's it's yeah. Well, in the future, we should probably talk about that. But you know, he talks okay. about all the ways that. Af- and it, actually, here's a better recommendation because it's a lot shorter. Uh, when Jews were uh, or how did Jews become white? I think is the title of the article from a volume okay. called just called race by Karen Broadkin Sachs. Um, and, uh, uh, so, so for instance, in social security, farm workers and people that worked in domestic service were intentionally excluded, uh, mm. from this, yeah. uh, and farm worker was, was, um, defined very, very broadly. And, you know, these were the, the, the areas that African-Americans tended to work in and the, you know, the argument that people gave, well, you needed Southern, um, Congress people to get on board with the GI bill. And the only way they would get on board with it is by excluding African-Americans and not upsetting segregation too much. Uh, so, all right. So we'll, we'll, for the millionth time in our country's history, we will sell out a minority population, you know, in order to yeah. uh, help white people. <laughs> God. Uh, but, but please remember, Jan, that DEI initiatives are not necessary. And um, this poor white uh, legislator from Kentucky had a father who was a slave in the 1930s. Obviously. Yeah, obviously. Uh, and if you're skipping ahead, skipped ahead, go back to listen to the beginning of this episode. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so you know what we're talking about. All right. So. One of the historical developments that happened around the 19, you know, uh, 50s, 60s, uh, especially. Well, let's so let's let's do do a few other bits of context before or one other before we get to that. OK, uh, what you know, 1920s politically, my dog is very upset by this episode. 1920s politically, 
Um, you know, you had like the Red Scare. You had lots of, uh, I mean, socialism was a vibrant political movement. You know, worker yes. radicalism, anarchists, you know, uh, radical leftists. Yeah, exactly. The Soviet Union, or, you know, I don't know when the Soviet Union was officially formed, but the, the Red Revolution and, and, yeah. uh, in Russia it was 1917, right? And there was yeah. a, a big concern that, you know, the Reds were going to, communism was spreading throughout the world. So, I mean, the, and, and you know, in the 1920s, uh, it fucking sucked economically. Yeah. <laughs> For people, yep. you know, the depression was some tough ass shit. I mean, people were pissed off. Uh, the threat of revolution in the U.S. was a very real possibility, especially um, because yeah. we had just we had just gone through. Uh, we we'd come out of World War yeah. One. Uh, there was yeah. there was a, a a sense of jubilation in the first part of the of the twenties. You know, the roaring twenties, yeah. as we talk about. Right. Prohibition. Right. Prohibition was was eliminated uh, at some point in that process and yeah, uh, yeah somewhere it, somewhere through there so people were drinking and partying <laughs> and having a good time uh and then the uh and then the mythology that is the stock market had its biggest that's explosion right. yeah. at that point um yeah. and and so yeah it was a real it was a real difficult trying time for what we would call the middle class and poor people as well yeah so so uh, FDR is elected, you know, as a response yep. to, to Hoover and, and FDR did a lot of great things. I mean, uh, um, the, uh, prohibition was actually from 20 to 33. I didn't know. Oh, that. good Lord. Is it but, that long? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I that's why the twenties were roaring but... because it was, it was illegal to drink. So they drank even more, you know, that's right. Alcohol. And drank like bath, <laughs> bathtub gin, you know, bathtub <laughs> gin, baby. There you go. That's a shit in it. Yeah. Well, that's where so many of our people in Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, yeah. you know, um, I just Moonshiners, read a story baby. Yeah. About a, about a, a town where like 90% of the population like traces its origins to, or not origins, but it's family legacy to, to moonshining. And yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, so in the, this is the context in which we get these, um, Keynesian, you know, ele we get elements of socialism in the U.S. We get elements of a social safety net in the U.S. for some people. Um, so eventually um, folks uh, looked around, uh, non-white folks looked around and some white people and said, wait a minute, uh, we're not we're not being allowed to participate in the uh, prosperity that is spreading throughout the country. Right. We don't think that's fair. Uh, we don't think we should be uh, barred from these uplifting programs based on race. How about you give us some of that stuff too? And uh, predictably, a lot of the country just lost their shit <laughs> over, the, over this. You know, a lot of the, you know, some parts of the country got on board with it. And of course, due to n nothing less than, uh, as we talked about a few episodes ago, the backbreaking work that the civil rights movement and other, you know, associated movement, black power movement, uh, uh, engaged in over the course of decades, you know, they won some, some big victories. Yeah. But as, as this was happening, as some victories were being won predictably, sadly, but predictably there was a backlash uh, yeah. to this, um, that, wait a minute, you know, I, 
I love owning my own home, but I don't want to have to live next to, you know, those people. Uh, They're going to ruin the neighborhood, you know? Uh, So there was a backlash and uh, uh, Arizona Senator, I think named Barry Goldwater capitalized Hmm. on this uh, to become a, a prominent politician. So, and he ran for president in 68. He got soundly, you know, defeated. Uh, but the ideas that Goldwater espoused are basically the beginning of the modern conservative movement. So like people like mm-hmm. William F. Buckley Jr., the National Review, like oh, this whole crowd of people, um, he legitimized these like, law and order, you know, uh, mm-hmm. philosophy. So, so Nixon, you know, took it further. And then, uh, and then we get in 1980, uh, who do we who do we get as our fine dear president, Jan? And, and what's Ronnie he like? Reagan? Oh, he's well, he's an actor, uh, and he acted like a, <laughs> he acted like a president for eight years, um, yeah, and, and all the things that go along with that. But because of because of him, uh, we're still reeling uh, from some of his economic policies. Most, of course, notably trickle down economics that has that's right uh, yet, yeah. yet to trickle. And that's another term that neoliberal economics goes by is trickle down economics, you know, so that's, so please excuse my long winded historical uh, contextualization of all that. Um, I like it by the way. No, I just want to say, I, 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 you, you teach, this is, this is why you're, Uh, (laughs) well, I hope so. Um, uh, Unlike my students that I used to have though, it's not, you don't seem to think it's your job to look bored and disaffected while I'm talking. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that about you. If nothing, if nothing less. So, so Reagan, now this is an interesting historical tidbit that, that shows you just what kind of piece of shit Ronald Reagan was. So when he announced his presidential campaign, uh, as part of his announcement, he did so in Philadelphia, Mississippi, okay. where his speech focused on states' rights. Oh, so, wow. Jan, if you if you've got your dog whistle ears on, what does that say to you? Uh, that says I'm talking to white people to let them know that I'm going to defend their right to be segregated from black people. I'm going to defend their right mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that they maintain control of the local economy and property and everything else because. Uh, people in, not everybody, obviously, but a great many people in the South referred for a long time to the civil war as the battle for states or the war for states rights, yeah. uh, disregarding the fact that the right they were fighting for was to own slaves. But, uh, but yeah, that was definitely, I mean, a, a language like that. I didn't realize he did that. Um, language like that is code yeah. for, uh, I will help white people. Yeah, and it gets even more uh, over the dog whistling because becomes even more overt and um, really ceases to be dog whistling, but it's just human speaking as opposed to dog yeah. whistling. If you consider that um, Philadelphia, Mississippi is where the three civil rights workers, uh, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, uh, yeah. were murdered uh, in 1964. Uh, so <laughs> the message could not be clearer um that uh you know reagan is giving this speech in philadelphia mississippi 16 years which is you know some time but not a huge amount of time not that much time after you know civil rights workers were were murdered um and he's talking about states rights so 
you know, speaking directly to white people and letting them know, yeah, I look, I get this backlash, you know, yeah. you let black people do this next. They're going to want this next. They're going to want this. And we got to draw the line somewhere. And, um, right. yeah. Uh, so vote for me and I'll make sure that happens. And by golly, that was one campaign promise that, that Reagan really <laughs> set his heart and efforts to fulfilling. Uh, so it can be done, you know, just, <laughs> just so we know, historically campaign promises can be kept. Um, just, you know, not the, what we would consider not to be the right one. Good Lord. So as part of this, just backlash politics in general, we can call it, um, part of the backlash that Reagan espoused was what we now call neoliberal economics. And again, uh, interestingly, George Bush, who would go on to become the first George Bush, would go on to become Reagan's vice president, um, campaigned mm. against Reagan for the nomination. Yeah. And when Reagan was talking about these ideas, anybody who has seen uh, the movie Ferris Bueller knows yeah. that he called this something D.O.O. Something economics. D-O-O economics. Thank you. Voodoo economics. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was going to ask you, what is something D.O.O. economics, Sean? It's voodoo economics. So, it is so George economics. Bush... George Bush, a Republican um, in 1980, was looking at this neoliberal philosophy that Reagan was espousing and saying, what the fuck are you talking about? Like right, that right, right. is complete horseshit uh, yeah. that just doesn't work. You know, yep. it, that that's ludicrous. It's not going to work. And um, I guess he gets a little bit of credit for being empirically right. Yeah. Of course, after Reagan That's where won, the like completely any, stops. <laughs> yeah. Like any good politician, he stuck his finger up in the air and sensed which way the, you know, winds were blowing and jumped yeah. fully on board with the DOO economics. You know, he yeah, well, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Just got on board with it. We'll we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh and um then uh Clinton was elected and wouldn't you know it, by golly, he got on board with it. And then Bush the second. Well, of course he was he was on board with it. And Obama, the socialist Obama, he yeah. really had no problem with neoliberal economics nope. and really didn't and change. In, and it, in fact, he yeah. he took it to a whole new level when he bailed out the banks and and things. Yeah, in, in, that's right. That's during, a, that's during, exactly right. During the second yeah. Great Depression. No, wait, 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 Jan. Bailed out the banks. Wait, neoliberal. I thought government spending was bad. Yeah, it, only if it's given to the citizens, only if it's given to saying like, you know, social programs, that's when it's bad. You know, these banks, as we've talked about before, they were job creators. So, you know, we got to give them the money. Right. So you you just summed up basically the paradox upon which neoliberalism is founded. Uh, paradox yep. or hypocrisy, however you want to talk about it. It purports to be a model of economics, which is all about the free market. But really, yeah. and this is uh, the the... The book that you and I are are uh, using as a uh, jumping off point for our conversation today is a book called When Corporations Rule the World by David Corton. Uh, one of the most important books, I think, of the 20th century. Um, very accessible, very easy to understand. Could not recommend it uh, highly enough. You can probably find a used copy for like three bucks somewhere. And um, Corton uh, claims with lots of evidence to support him that no neoliberalism is not a model of economy. It's a model of governance. Yes. It's a model of politics that involves a lot of economic decision-making. So the, 
word, and this is, I think, a much more the phrase, not the word. This is a much more descriptive and accurate term for neoliberalism that he gives. Uh, he gives to it is corporate libertarianism. Mm. So when I say yeah. Jan, corporate libertarianism, what does that mean to you? Uh, it means that for one thing, um, corporations are uh, are. Uh, alive they're uh anthropomorphized yes they they're, are, people. Uh, they're people they're people yes uh mm-hmm. that that um are supposedly uh meant to function as ways to collectively raise up the incomes and mm-hmm. and livelihoods of the people who are a part right. of that corporation and uh, with with less and, and, and less and government influence there you go. That the so what's the libertarian part of this corporate yeah, yeah, right. personhood? Yeah. It, it's yeah. If you make corporations totally free, it will yeah. do the things that you just said. Yeah, if the privatization of things that government we have depended upon government to do, the private uh, sector obviously does better. So uh, corporate uh, libertarianism is is a way for the government to do less. Less well in their in in their um, spin on it to invade our lives less to control our lives less and let us have more freedom uh, through the great gift of corporate ownership. Yeah, yeah. So the but interesting. The libertarian is not for us. The libertarianism is for corporations. Oh yeah. So for sure. you know, it, look if you're a hardcore libertarian, um, I mean it's a it's a political philosophy that is very easy to show that has just some many unworkable elements that are impractical uh, and just logically break down upon the slightest scrutiny. But if you believe that, honestly, if you're an honest, you know, individualist libertarian, uh, you know, freedom for everybody, get the government, Mm -hmm. you know, out of my womb, out of my, you know, whatever, then yeah, sure. I mean, I guess at least you're being consistent, I guess. But corporate neoliberalists, corporate libertarians are not even that. They don't want those freedoms for you and me. They want freedoms for corporations. And when the corporate interest runs up against the interest of people, you best default to corporate. (laughs) Right. It's going to go to the Yeah, absolutely. So what does, so, so what does look, making corporations more free, what does that look like policy-wise? You've mentioned a few already, but just kind of put it out there. Yeah, sure. It means that, uh, ta- well, tax incentives for yeah. corporations instead of tax incentives for people. Um, yeah. The, well, Let's give them government money. And um, the incentive to reduce their costs, which means we get yes. things like Clinton's NAFTA that allow jobs yeah. to be shipped overseas because it's cheaper labor, yeah. Uh, yeah. which, you know, obviously, and, and also yeah. like most, maybe most fundamentally is that corporations for all intents and purposes now get to vote because they are enacting legislation yeah. through, through their donations, through their influence, well, through, right. you know, all those things. So, yeah. um, well, now they don't even have to make donations. I mean, with dark money groups, they can just give them well, yeah, amounts exactly. of money to these you know, fake groups, uh, you know, citizens for families or some shit like that. Um, and then can (laughs) citizens for families. That's great. I'm sure there's one like that. I mean, yeah, I'm no, I'm sure people for people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The human fund. I mean, the Seinfeld, you know, money for people. Um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's the, the legislation that is maybe the, the, 
icing on the cake for this is the fucking Citizens United uh, case. Yeah, uh, that's right. So, yeah. you know, that was the end. And like a name like Citizens United is exactly what right, we're talking right, about. Right, 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 right. That, that's so. exactly. Or, Orwellian, right. They give these things these yeah. Orwellian, Orwellian names. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's... Um, Let's back up a little bit then and look sure. at the the kind of Adam Smith level intellectual supposed foundation of this philosophy. So Adam Adam Smith's ideal, you know, when the context that he thought of you and I and everybody else pursuing our our individual self interest uh, and that leading to optimal outcomes was, I mean, Smith. This is the late 1700s. So he's talking about a market of small buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. you know, pursuing their self-interest within a community where you live, right. yeah. you know, these people are your neighbors. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, there are worker cooperatives right. that exist, you know, in these, uh, uh, you know, in these uh, settings. So in other words, um, there was no big business in Smith's No, world. definitely not. It, it no. was, it was a foreign, you know, alien concept. Uh, and in fact, Smith went to so far to say is it's only when no buyer or seller is big enough to single-handedly influence the market. Right. That this works. If they are, yeah, he it was, doesn't work. So yeah, go ahead. He, yeah, he, no, he was, he was essentially uh, ahead of his time in talking about um, the, the, the danger of monopolies, the danger of one company controlling any one particular industry, or even not just one company, a, a half dozen extremely large companies yeah. uh, controlling one aspect right. of, of industry. And like you said, he was talking about, and it's important to note, I think that this, that he was writing this in 1776. Uh, right. So it, yeah. it was right at the birth of our country. Uh, That's as right. We define it, that he was, that he was talking about the need. And I mean, also he talked about, ironically, the, the rights of states to do, to decide these things for themselves. So, you know, a, a larger community, but a community nonetheless, um, where, where these kinds of decisions could be made at a local level, you know? Yeah. So Smith, I mean, for good reason, Smith is remembered as being very suspicious, if not hostile toward government. Yeah. But he was also very suspicious and hostile toward the idea of, big business of concentrated business interests. Um, What he was suspicious and hostile toward was any center of power that was too big, essentially. Uh, Whether it's the public sector government or the private sector, you know, business, uh, that was a bad thing. We should not allow those, you know, huge forces of, of of Mm. power centralization to dominate our lives. Um, and one so, of the things I, um, I think he, yeah. I can't remember if he was, if, if this was him discussing this or if this was, if this was just another part of, of the book, which by the way, I've not read the whole thing yet. Not, but what I have read mm-hmm. that Chris has shared with me is certainly something that I, it makes me want to continue reading. But, um, the, I think his understanding of, uh, that large corporation, um, mentality comes from, of course, the fact that England was, uh, you know, the, they colonized the world. And one of the things that I didn't realize about how they conducted business back then, uh, which sounds as crazy as the way some businesses conducted today is that it, when, when England had the colonies in the United States, even though we had the ability here to, uh, create our own textiles and things, we weren't allowed to, we had to ship everything to England where they would then do the work and then ship it back to us. 
uh, which is right. just which you know is the kind of thing that goes on today. Uh, yeah. You know, shipping yeah. shipping goods to Mexico or wherever to have it done and then yeah. shipped back to us. It's it's the model of colonialism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the new made in the USA is uh, uh, assembled in China of American Assemb- components. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yeah. Or okay. or or assembled in America of foreign components. Either way, you know. I mean, it yeah. happens. It's like yeah. everywhere, like that. Ugh. All right. So that's that's one thing that you know. One of the three preconditions for for um, capitalism to work for Smith was you can't have big monopoly power. You can't have right. big business. Essentially. Right. So the second precondition is that uh, you could not allow market distortions you know you i mean it's it's kind of the same as precondition one but he goes becomes a little bit more specific so these days the fancy economic term for this is externalities so uh and i think we've talked about this before where if i'm a corporation i want to uh keep as much of the profit as i can Right. And the, the costs, the opportunity costs or the, 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 the costs of production, you know what? It would be really great if I didn't have to pay for, for that part of it. I, I would love to make the public pay for that part of it. Oh, yeah. um, so this, this is an externality. So, for instance, the automobile industry, mm. you know, creates a ton of externalities. So sure. in other words, it creates a ton of costs to the world that they don't pay for. Uh, right. Just off the top of your head, can you think of some costs oh, that God. the automobile industry creates that we don't pay for or they don't pay for? That's uh, no, well, I don't want to put you on <laughs> you the spot. Edu- That's okay. Educate yeah. me, educate me. Well, I mean, so like think about the environmental degradation. So, Oh, Oh, fuels. okay. All, sure. You know, yes, obviously. Yeah. No, I was sitting here thinking yeah. about the actual manufacturing of a car. The fact that, you know, like actually my, my, well, there's probably some there too. <laughs> part of it's made in West yeah. Virginia and part of it's made in Korea and part of it's made wherever you know, mm-hmm. or not Korea. Yeah. So, I mean, made. all anyway. the fossil fuels associated with the production of cars and then and cars shipping. themselves use yeah. right, fossil fuels. So environmental degradation as, you know, think one of the biggest public health, you know, crises that we don't talk about is asthma. Um, mm. do you, you have asthma? Your kids have asthma? So my son did and, uh, essentially grew out of it, but I mean, he still might every now okay. and then have a thing, but, uh, and so did Kimberly. She, my wife, she had it, uh, and has essentially grown out of it. Ironically, I did not have it and have developed it as an adult. It's yeah. mild. It's not bad, yeah. but like to your point, it's the sort of, you know, the, the air quality where I live has gone yeah. to an extent that it's something that I have now developed. Yeah, I mean, asthma is lung damage, yeah, <laughs> you exactly, know, right? and yeah, exactly. it's lung damage that comes from, you know, these micro pollutants in the air and these come from sure. industry. And yeah, I mean, there's some uh, mild regulation about taking some stuff out of the air, but by and large, it's not. And so if you, you know, kids miss an enormous amount of school every year because of asthma attacks. And of course, some people right. die. I mean, it, it does happen. Yeah. Um, but oh, it's even scary if you... Do you have it in your family? No, I mean, nephews, uh, but nobody yeah. in my immediate family, no. You know? I, I will say that, you know, that when my son was, was little and would have those kind of attacks, it's a frightening thing uh, as a parent. And yeah. so, yes, it's uh, it's life-threatening. It's scary. Yeah, so, I mean, so, like, do fossil fuel using industries, do they pay for your son's asthma inhaler? Your inhalers? No, of course not. 
No, of course not. No. So no. that's an externality. They create yeah. the problem, but you have to pay for it. I mean, that's an externality. Man, I, yeah. No, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, go I'm, and I'm, no, I'm just glad you clarified it like that because I don't think that that um, it's dif- it's difficult for people to put, and I include myself among people, to put uh, to connect the dots on those things that you that you that you f- deal with yeah. literally every day, but you don't think yeah. about. The fact that like my son's asthma is directly related to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, you might in, you know, eventually arrive at that realization, but on the daily, it's not the sort of thing that you just think about it as, you know, this is an affliction he has like so many other afflictions that we have. Money is literally flowing out of your bank account (laughs) to pay for the costs, you know, that the the profits that other people are are reaping. And then we have like, you know, automobiles are not a very safe form of travel. So we have injuries and deaths, you know, uh, you know, large numbers of injuries and deaths. And then we have, you know, our cities. Uh, by and large, not not all of them, but by and large, our cities are the the geography of them are shaped by the automobile roads, interstates, right. you know, all these sort of things. So a lot of our cities are practically unwalkable in most areas. Oh, absolutely. You know, Listen, and- I live in a rural area in the southern West Virginia, and my city is unwalkable. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. like the de- the downtown part of Beckley, where like, you know, the, the city sort of essentially began, that area is walkable, but nobody lives there. You have to drive there to be able to <laughs> right. walk the downtown of, of that area. You know, it's all it's all so, businesses yeah. and handful of apartments. Uh, but I live, you know, I live on a rural street and I can't walk up and down the street because it, this it's designed for automobile travel. Yeah. So, so think about, you know, if we had public transportation, yeah. you know, you would have to walk to the stop, walk from the stop to, you know, your location, you know, walk between you would, and, and the cities would just be more walkable in general. So people would yep. be doing a, a lot more walking. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a, uh, 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 more indirect than the asthma example, but, um, you know, things like obesity, heart disease, yep. high blood pressure. I mean, we, we have created our cities to be homes for automobiles, uh, rather than homes for homes for people, homes for when automobiles we, uh, and industry. When we, um, visited Denmark, um, and people who become, long time listeners to scooping sanity if you've been if you've been listening to us since the beginning <laughs> if you've been with us since the beginning two yeah. months ago yeah you will uh you will hear me talk about denmark a lot um it's where my dad was from and i have a lot of family there and i love going there and they are a, a country of a lot of walkable cities they first of all they have a wonderful uh, public transportation system but they have a lot of areas of downtown that are pedestrian only um you're just not allowed to have uh vehicles on these streets and so uh, the the two weeks ish that I was in Denmark, there wasn't a single day that I walked less mm-hmm. than ten thousand steps. In fact, I doubt there was a single day I'll walk less than fifteen thousand steps. And that's you know, yeah. that's a, a healthy yeah. way of uh, and it meant that I could eat all the pastry and sausage and all that stuff that I was going to eat. Anyway. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> right. I could eat yeah. all that good. There's shit. an immense but, benefit. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but uh, really and truly, like most of my relatives are in very good shape. I mean, with, you know, some exceptions, obviously, in every family and there's, you know, uh, diseases that people have that aren't related to any of this. But but by and large, 
um, healthy individuals who yeah. enjoy a robust sausage and potato based diet, <laughs> uh, who, yeah. who live well into their eighties and such. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're science is discovering that there, there may in fact be almost nothing as unhealthy for you as sitting on your ass. Right. <laughs> Right. Like, no, you're right. Yeah. At least excess excessively. I mean, it right. is just incredibly bad for you, you know? Yep. And it would be so nice if walking, like, I mean, I, I try to walk, you know, but it's like, God, it's like, it's boring, man. Like even, well, you know, <laughs> if you had ahead, somewhere, sorry. but, but like, if we had somewhere to walk, that was easily like my wife and I talk about this yeah. all the time. We, 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 tr- we have tried and continue to try to get steps in, but you know, yeah, we live, we live, we live on a street where, and again, I live in a, a rural community he, in Southern Africa. You would be risking your life. I'd be risking my life. Well, first of all, there's no sidewalks. So there's that. Right. Um, second of all, the speed limit on my street is 35 miles an hour, which means that people do 45. Um, right. And, and even 35 is too fast to be near a car at all. Uh, it's dangerous. Um, and so we, if we want to go for a walk, we have to drive somewhere to go for a walk. Now we drive to places that are beautiful. I, I live in the mountains. There are some gorgeous yeah. places around here to walk. It's, you know, absolutely fantastic. Then in the wintertime, um, I have yet to convince her to become a mall walker. She's, she's against it. That's like what old, pe- <laughs> old people do. Um, that is I'm, what old people do, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I am trying, I have been mall walking, uh, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, uh, because it at least gets my steps in, well, but that my should, point is you like, should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point obviously is no. if yeah, I no, live, you, you know, yeah. if I lived in a walkable community, it wouldn't be an issue. Right. Right. Well, and then even if you drive somewhere, I mean, you just feel stupid. For driving somewhere to walk and like, God, I got to fucking put fossil fuels into the air, you know, to, you know, to get my steps in. And yeah. Anyway, so so that a little off topic, but you, you, but the point is made. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it's a perfect example of how corporate, yeah. Corporate interests and profits rule our lives. I mean, because people want to continue making profits from selling fossil fuels and selling automobiles and they don't, you know, the makers of those aren't a big fan of public transit. And um, so um, the rest of us pay for it in many, many different ways. So that was precondition two. Yeah. I was one more thing. I actually read, this has been a long time ago, but I read an article about a, 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 uh, one of the, some somebody in the automotive industry lobbying in a local community against sidewalks um, because there no seriously like their argument was that it was that it would be unsafe because it was uh, shrinking the size of the lanes on the street but the real but the uh, real reason was that people would walk more yeah well that I mean anyway. so that touches on another huge component that um, that Corton gets into before we get to Adam Smith's uh, precondition three for capitalism to actually work. But Corton talks about in, in, in a few of the chapters that we read that it's no coincidence that with the rise of this neoliberal model of society, you also get a, a huge expansion in the public relations industry. Mm-hmm. And the the public relations industry's job is to convince people that our interest is the same as their client's interest. You know, uh, if, yeah. if you, you go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say in the, in the, in the sec, in a section of his book, uh, a subheading mm-hmm. uh, called democracy for hire, uh, in the yeah. United States, there are 170,000, 170,000 
public relations employees engaged in, in his words, manipulating news, public opinion, and public policy to serve the interests of paying clients. And those people now outnumber actual journalists by about mm-hmm. 40,000 at the time of his writing. And the gap is Which growing. was 30 years ago, because this is, I think, I, this is an early edition of the book. The book has been updated yeah. several editions, so, but I, the edition I have is an early. So I think it was like literally 30 years ago. So I'm sure it's like way more than that. Yeah. Uh, if currently. at that time it was I mean, 170,000 in PR, it's probably twice that now. Uh, and because yeah. like, and, and there are so many... Um, more PR firms that don't even call themselves PR firms anymore. They're, they're marketing firms or they are marketing agencies yeah. and, and, well, and, yeah. and it's essentially become a, an industry of, of affecting change in policy versus like, just like trying to sell something. You know what I mean? Change in policy and convincing everybody that we're the good guy. And, yeah, you yeah. know, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so on the school board, you know, I run across media a lot of the time and I, so many of them have gone from being a journalist to mm-hmm. the PR industry. You know, they make more money. It's, you know, it's yep. hard to blame them, honestly. You know, they, and no. I'm sure it's better hours. But just to give you one example, and JCPS, you know, has a has a media relations person, you know, and mm-hmm. um, communications department, you know. Sure. That, you know, we like to think that we're on the, you know, sharing good stories that need to be told. Um, and, and one of the things I often say to uh, JCPS administration is like, look, you, once an, a school system loses or an administration loses the faith of the community, you don't get it back. No. So just don't bullshit. Don't bullshit people. Okay. Yeah. Like, yes, we got to yep. be out there telling the positive stories that aren't getting told, but you also have to face the music when we fuck up and do, and bad stuff happens and things aren't yep. going right. Um, so anyway, I hope they try to do it. But one of our former communications uh, folks at JCPS was hired away from us and she's a wonderful person. I'm not, this is not, she was hired away from us by a local nonprofit healthcare provider in Louisville. She makes at this local nonprofit healthcare provider, uh, $650,000. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. You believe that? Yeah. I think my Um, brain froze again. Yeah, and this is again a nonprofit healthcare oh, provider um, in Louisville, and uh, but that's you know that's how important communications controlling the message you know yeah. that's how important it is. Corporations will pay out of the ass um, to get people to to pump things out there that make them look like the good guy, which uh, is why, in my opinion, for a long, long, long time. Uh, this is where the left has fallen short and, 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 you know, we, we, uh, we have not crafted our message with the same level of, uh, cunning as, as the conservative side has. And, um, and and while I recognize that's not the only issue at hand, I do believe that, that conservatives in general for the last 50 plus years have been better at telling the story, their story. Uh, Absolutely. Than the the left has. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, six hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. Wow, gotta yeah. update my resume. Um, I know, right? Yeah, you're a community. Just put communications expert on top of your I resume and see. <laughs> Me talk good. I think you are. I think you are good at communicating. Um, so, 
Okay. Uh, so Corton, uh, actually, who's not a social theorist, really, even though he does a lot of really good social theory in this book, he puts forth what I think is a really good definition of ideology, which is, uh, he, he says, is where people are able to universalize the interests of one group to, uh, to all people, essentially, to, to, to convince... Okay people that my interest is also your interest, even though it may not in fact be. And that's the whole trickle down, you know, mantra. That's what that comes from is like, yeah, okay, look, we're doing this stuff for rich people and they're benefiting, but look, this is good for everybody. Um, so, you know, just get in your boat and let the rising tide lift your boat. Um, and again, after, uh, 40, I'm sorry, uh, I'm old 60 years, no, 40. No, I was right the first time. Shit, I can't do that. After 40 plus years of neoliberal economics, the evidence is in. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. do that. Uh, but we still have this neoliberal model of economy because there aren't any politicians or social movements that are um, committed enough to changing it, except for maybe Bernie Sanders, you know, who, which is why he had to be stopped you know which is why the democratic establishment threw every fucking thing they could at him including as we've discussed before joe biden's dead reanimated corpse to to try to stop the the bernie movement when in fact i mean it's clear the bernie the the people want you know bernie style policies absolutely Um, but we can't have that because corporations control both of our major political parties. I was going to say, sorry, I remember I was going to say back on your message, the left hasn't messaging. I mean, and this, you know, that might sound a little bit cynical to people, but, but Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., all of these people were very explicit that, no, you have to have propaganda. You know, it just, it should be, it should be propaganda based on the reality of people's lives, you know, but you have to tell that in a dramatic catchy fashion to get people to care about it. That's a core aspect of a social movement that you shouldn't shy away from. So there's nothing wrong with propaganda. It's just, yeah, well that, that, that word has become associated with, with negativity or or more specifically with lies. Uh, and you know, not, Mm -hmm. you know, not all propaganda and racism. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, propaganda is, is just a way of promoting your message. Absolutely. So, so, uh, belatedly, the third precondition for capitalism to actually work, according to Adam Smith, is that corporations have to be rooted in the place where mm. they operate, hire people, sell their goods. You know, they have yeah. to be in and of the community so right. that if the community says to it, hey, you know, you need to stop doing this or you need to pay your workers more or whatever. The corporation just can't like say, fuck you. I'm going over to, you know, Mexico, Nicaragua, Vietnam, China, wherever. Um, So the whole concept of free trade is, does not factor into Adam Smith's analysis really. No, no, not at all. Uh, And it's not as though he was against trade. The idea was that the, the no, not at all. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the local business would be trading with another local business, maybe, maybe far away even, but it was, it was a a connection between two communities, not, uh, not a dismantling of the community. That's right. So in, in uh, now I'm going to bring anthropology into it because this is one, well, well, yeah, it's anthropology. Uh, it's also well, something else. But this is one area where anthropology ha- actually has something to offer 
in intellectual analysis. Often it doesn't. So much of anthropology, I say as an anthropologist, is just total bullshit. But um, but we call these types of economies embedded economies. In other words, the economy is embedded in the larger society in which it operates. What we have now, though, in the neoliberal world is the disembedded economy, where mm. a- economy not only is disembedded from society, but it essentially dictates social policy in most right. cases. You know, the question is always a financial one now. It's not a human one. It's not a, the question isn't, is that good for people? The question is, is that good for the market? Is that good for, right. for business? Um, this is a very recent um, concept in the history of human beings. Human beings have been around modern human beings sometime between 200,000 and 500,000 years. No, nobody really knows, knows for sure. Right, 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 it's right. only in the last, it's only in the last like 200 years that we have even imagined mm. neoliberal society as a possibility. Right. Um, for the vast majority of human history, the economy was just one other component of society. Um, like politics, like religion, like kinship, you know, whatever. And if you tried to be an asshole economically and get rich by fucking people over, guess what? They would literally kill you. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't do it. They had mechanisms in place. I mean, nobody, nobody ever even tried to do that because you were looked at so, uh, negatively, I mean, this is where, again, I'm trying to get too much into anthropology, but witchcraft, a lot of witchcraft comes down to people using evil means people recognize to keep people in check, you know, to keep them from violating the social norms that say, no, you can't accumulate and become better than the rest of us. You're just one of us dipshit. And (laughs) if you get too high and if you get too high and mighty, we're going to use witchcraft on you. And yeah, that might mean putting a curse on you, but it also might mean literally putting rat poison in your food. Right. <laughs> you know, that's right, witchcraft, right, right. you know? Um, anyway. Um, so those are the three things that must exist for capitalism to function. According to Adam Smith, we do not have any of those things currently in society. So we, according to Adam Smith, we don't really have capitalism. We have, and we don't something as we've different talked before. No. Yeah. 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 I mean, some people call neoliberalism an extreme form of capitalism. It is in certain ways, but not really. Um, yeah. It's socialism for the rich. It's it's allowing yeah. big business to distort the market so that it benefits them uh, and doesn't benefit benefit the rest of us. And, and we've we've become uh, I don't know that this is even a word, but oligarchism where we're an oligarchy yeah. uh, that where the, yeah. the, where the wealthy are in control. Um, which like, uh, and I'm not even a hundred percent sure that it's just the wealthy in control so much as it is the corporations are in control. Like they could even eliminate the people who are leading them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, absolutely. That uh, absolutely. It's become, it's become, uh, such that, uh, the, the business itself, like Amazon is more in control than Jeff Bezos is. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he's, yeah, he's a horribly evil yeah. person and it, you know, he has done. Yes. But my point is that like, if tomorrow some level of decision-making within that corporation wanted him gone and replaced by the next, he would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and he'd be fine, obviously, but, but perfect example yeah, would of be that fine, comes from the yeah. world. 
perfect example of that comes from uh, the world of um, one of the businesses that is, and I say this non-facetiously, it is one of the most influential um, organizations in the modern United States, and that would be uh, WWE, uh, Professional Wrestling. Really? Um, Yeah, headed for a long time by Vince McMahon, who was recently forced to finally step down. Do you know why yeah. he was forced to finally step down? I, I knew, I knew he stepped down. I thought it had to do with like sexual misconduct allegations or something. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, not, I mean, I guess they are technically just allegations for the moment, but, but very yeah. firmly established allegations, substantiated yeah. allegations. Uh, so long, long history of uh, being a sexual predator, uh, sexual abuse, rape, and uh, the thing that finally put a lot of people over the top was that he, and apologies for the disgusting nature of that. Well, I consider it disgusting. If, you know, uh, while someone was raping a woman, he defecated on her. Oh, Jesus um, Christ! Right, and uh, so I mean, the guy's just a sick son of a bitch. Um, so, yeah. but you know, for decades he had been synonymous with professional wrestling like yeah. wrestling was vince mcmahon he called the that's shots true. people that's true bent to his will you know uh and if you you didn't get on vince's bad side because then you'd be then you'd be fucked but to your point right. now he's 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 out but anyway um so so one of the things that uh um that I hope after, if you have endured this episode up to this point, one of the, the things that I hope you are convinced of is a quote that I'm about to read from an economist, uh, Gar uh, Alperovitz, who says, quote, the difference between a system dominated by General Motors and Exxon and one based upon the individual landholding farmer and small business person of an earlier day in American history may very well be greater than the difference between a system based upon large private bureaucracies in the United States and public bureaucracies in socialist nations, end quote. So in other words, the difference between what Adam Smith knew as capitalism and what we now know as capitalism is much greater than the difference between capitalism old capitalism and yeah. socialism. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think, I mean, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I completely yeah, agree with I, that. Yeah. The, the version of capitalism that we know today uh, would be so foreign to Adam Smith that I, I think he would not, he would come up with a new term for it. Uh, it would not, it would not be capitalism yeah. to him. Well, I think one of the things Adam, well, you know, who, who the fuck knows, but um, I've actually, uh, a few years ago when we were in Edinburgh, I saw a statue of Adam Smith. He's Scottish. Oh, cool. Know, which was kind of kind of cool, actually. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, one of the things I think Smith would agree with wholeheartedly. So after, you know, studying this material for the billionth time, um, it hit home with me to a new and increased level the, the thought that I just can't fucking believe that we have not openly violently revolted against this system. I cannot yeah. believe that we allow this shit to exist. And, and Adam Smith, if he were transported here today, you know, first would say, get me out of this box and then would say, <laughs> what the fuck are you people doing? Right. You know, what, right. What, how, how can you stand for this? This is not freedom. This is not, you know, a market. This is not what 
a community should be. You've allowed these yeah. huge private bureaucracies to dominate your lives to the extent that they tell you if you can live or die, um, if you can afford your medicine or food or housing or not. And well, I, I mean, the, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's just outrageous. It's, it is outrageous. But to your point right there, you said some, uh, this is not what a community should be. That's, that's part of the reason that, that we haven't revolted is that people feel isolated. People don't feel a part of a community. People feel like if they did anything, yeah. they would be doing it on their own. They don't know where to turn. They don't yeah. know how to, and, and also they're exhausted from their 40 hour work week at the one job and their 20 hour work week at their hustle side hustle. So, you know, not spending right. time with their kids. I mean, yeah. the, 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 uh, neoliberal economy, uh, the corporate uh, oligarchy that has created our current environment discourages us from even beginning to think about participating in some form of revolution because we are we're spent we are spread as thin as a human can possibly be spread yeah. trying to just get from Monday to Friday to be able to rest yeah. enough to be able to get to the next Monday to Friday. And it's, it's exhausting yeah. beyond what humans yeah. should have to endure. And that's, if you are lucky yeah, enough to be in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, another future episode that we need to do is about the war on drugs. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not an accident that Reagan also was the author of the war on drugs, because of mm. course this, this neoliberal model of society generated immense social upheaval and uh, precariousness for people. And you needed some way to, to contain mm. this ever growing mass of unemployed, you know, pissed off people that you also took their public benefits away. Yeah. You know, yep. you needed some way to, literally police this group of people so they didn't um you know start social movements that could fight against this model of society and the war right. on drugs among other things was has been very very effective uh at doing this yeah which led to a you know a very effective um pipeline from schools to prisons for certain groups of people right so that's another part of that conversation yeah 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 so, um, and you know, we haven't, I had this whole other section in my notes devoted to the, uh, world bank IMF, uh, you well, know, we these, should talk uh, about that at some point. This is like, we could, we could definitely yeah. call this part, this is part not one the of time, two. Yeah. Part, part one. Yeah. This was the yeah. domestic. Yeah. Yeah. Domestic. The domestic side. Next. Very good. Yeah. We'll go to, cause as, as you know, uh, my, uh, intense interest in these topics was, um, first awakened by traveling to central america in the yeah. and in fact i bought this book uh when corporations rule the world at union station in washington dc on the way back wow. from my first trip to nicaragua in 1997 i, didn't I still have the re wow. the receipt in the book actually oh uh, that's cool uh I know. Yeah. It's a relic from the past for sure. And I, <laughs> oh, and I need to give a, sh a huge shout out to, uh, I meant to do this much earlier. Hopefully I haven't told them about the podcast yet, but one of the people that's had the most positive influence on my life is uh, a Catholic priest named uh, Reverend Jim Flynn. And I, you know, as we've talked about before, I've largely given up on Catholicism and organized religion in general, but that doesn't mean that there aren't honestly, you know, very, very good people that, you know, sure. are in 
churches of various kinds and and jim is certainly one and um nice. he's still kicking he's in his mid 90s uh i think the last time i saw him in person he was having a guinness uh at um Attaboy. a local irish bar yeah exactly so um put, add that to your daily regimen at, well or don't depending on your <laughs> issues you may or may not have with alcohol <laughs> but there you go um but yeah, Guinness is good for you. Like the like the slogan, like the ad say. So, so shout out, shout out Jim Flynn. You know he befriended me. Uh, you know when um, I was just some punk kid, and he was a really cool dude. Still is a really cool dude that everybody looked up to in the community for doing excellent work in Central America. He was part. He was a. This to give you an idea, like he uh, when Witness for Peace first started people traveled to Nicaragua during the Contra war to document the atrocities. Right. So they were living in a war zone and wow. their lives were at risk, you know, and they right. were, you know, just aside from the war, they were in Guatemala, not, not so much Nicaragua, they were mugged and, you know, like had all kinds of crazy shit happened to them. And um, so they were literally risking their lives to, to make sure that the American citizens knew what their government was doing in Nicaragua that people did right. not know until, you know, Iran Contra and uh, wow. all that's all that stuff. Um, so just a, a shout out to the line, a, a shout out to the Reverend Jim Flynn. Um, yeah. So maybe I'll, you know, maybe we were discussing, Jan, we don't, we don't want to end these episodes with some phony, like, Oh, but it's not that bad, you know. No, it <laughs> no, really no, no. is that bad. No, it it's, really it's is. All, it's, it's all it's, it's all as shitty up. as you think. Yeah, no, it's it's as but, it's actually worse than you think it is. It, it it's actually much worse than you think it is. As I always tell people about politics, it's much more disgusting than than you can even imagine. Um, but uh, so we don't want this phony optimism. But we do what what I think is valuable is like lifting up these little. Uh, flames or sparks of goodness in your life, you know, that, yeah. you know, places where you get genuine joy or, you know, just makes you feel a certain way, you know, like, uh, I don't, yeah. I, and I don't even know if happy is the right term because sometimes, you know, I, I like reading kind of <laughs> sad stuff or depressing stuff meaningful sure. like i guess meaning meaning is meaningful what moments like, yeah you know, yeah what are the centers of meaning in your life so i you know yeah. i have never actively sought out mentors in my life uh that i'm aware of anyway yeah but i have been incredibly lucky uh to have a number of them that have you know come into my life and changed my life for the better and jim is certainly yeah. one my, um, my, uh, high school, I had him in, I think three different grades on high school history, civics teacher, Greg Hemaseth is one I actually got a chance to give him an, an honor a few years ago, which is really cool. At, at, nice. Um, you know, as a, as a board member. So that was really cool. Um, Greg Hemaseth is one, this guy, Marco Munoz, who works for JCPS and, and was actually born in Nicaragua and, mm. He uh, he actually went out as part of the Sandinista literacy campaign as a teenager okay. and was like teaching people to read That's awesome. in rural Nicaragua, you know, in these just like remote places where there were the Contras, you know, there was always a chance that Contras could come through and kill people. And right. um, so that gives you a flavor of just what Legend. kind of a guy yeah. this guy is. That's awesome. Um, you know. 
Carla Wallace, you know, another mentor of mine here in, in, in town, Kathy Hinko. So, and these, some of these people don't even know that I think that they're, they're my mentors, but, um, right. but they certainly are. So, uh, my cherry on top for this episode will just be an acknowledgement of them and encouraging people out there to, if you have people like this in your life, uh, stop and appreciate them. You know, Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe we should tell them how much we appreciate them, but even if we don't do that, if we just stop and appreciate them for ourselves, uh, you know, that's something that makes me feel, uh, momentarily good in this capitalist hellscape that we, that we, I think that's wonderful. Inhabit. Chris. I, I, I think that's a perfect cherry on top. And I think that, uh, you're lucky to have had those people in your life, but they are also lucky to have had you. And, um, I'm, if we are, we are, we are best of friends, but uh, I would certainly consider you a mentor to me in many ways. Oh God. Yeah. Well, that's frightening, but, um, (laughs) well, Jan, you, Jan is headed out to California to see his son. Yeah. Pretty Uh, excited about that. The reason for your trip. Yeah. yeah. So what you're leaving later today, is that right? Or tomorrow? Le- leaving Valentine's day night. We fly out at nine okay. o'clock the night, so tonight, seven, yeah. seven o'clock tonight, something like that. All right. Yes. We're recording this on a Valentine's day. So happy Valentine's day to all you scoopers, <laughs> all you scoopers <laughs> out there. Hope you yeah. get the, this, the flavor scoop of your choice today from Absolutely. your friend or, or partner or yourself by yourself. And listen, if, if you person. don't have a Valentine on Valentine's day, don't worry. I did not have a groundhog on groundhog's day and I could throw it just fine. So, you know, that's very fine. true. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Well, thank you for that uplifting message. Jan, love you as always. Great to talk love to you. you. Too, buddy. Uh, you as well. We will see y'all soon. 